0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's Talk Radio Show About Opera. You can give on our website, OperaBoxcore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera related. OperaBoxScore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble!
0: Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago, and that means you can be one of our listeners who gets to have their say live on the air. 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. We're also streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. Again, hey, call us, 847 847- Eight six six nine right. Tonight, contemporary American composer William Balcom joins me inside the huddle. We talk about his career bridging the gap between popular and classical music as well as his work with librettists Arnold Weinstein and Mark Campbell. That's in 20 minutes. But first, we respond to some listeners' letters and we update you on some opera happening right here in Chicago on the home team. And, of course, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. Got a lot to do on this show tonight. I'm so glad that Oliver Camacho is here with me holding my hand. Mm. Your hand's a little sweaty. Sorry.
2: Sorry you were watching this video for the Arizona Opera Hercules thing, so I'm a little moist right now.
0: Oh, boy. We'll get to that in a moist. second. <laughs> Tobias Wright, does that video make you moist? <laughs> I,
3: I'm always moist. It, wait, who? I didn't know we were going there today, but here we are. It's well, 9 o'clock. The
2: kids are asleep. Yeah, did. that's true.
0: Everybody's uh, in bed. Any sports talk you guys need to do? Get out of the way. Get off your chests.
3: I, can I say something? Um, the Kansas City Chiefs did something that they haven't done since 1983, Um, And that was draft a quarterback in the first round. So I'm a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan, and they constantly have retreads. You know, guys who weren't good enough or were at the end of their careers were good quarterbacks, but not in their prime. You know, Alex Smith from the 49ers, Joe Montana from the 49ers, guys like that. Um, And they finally drafted a quarterback in Patrick Mahomes from Texas Tech, and I'm pretty stoked.
0: Well, you know, the Bears did a great job drafting a quarterback as well. Did they? Is what I would be saying <laughs> if it wasn't Trubinsky. What a mess that was.
3: Uh, that when they introduced him, poor kid. I mean, and he is just a kid. When they introduced him at the Bulls game, everybody booed.
0: I thought only people in Philadelphia did that.
3: Uh, apparently, they do that in Chicago as well.
0: That's... Right, Oliver?
2: People boo? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Sports figures? That's yes. Just,
0: that's just so. Classless. I can't even so, tell you.
2: you what, what happened again. They, they picked the wrong guy. Oh, go back to sleep. Was he was he good looking? At least he is good looking. Okay, well uh, then,
3: you, you should hear him talk though. It's like Trebin- is he <laughs> as
2: good looking as that guy Tim Tebow? Is that Tim? Oh team? my um,
3: goodness! You thought Tobias. Tim Tebow was good looking? Oh my god, the man.
2: Mm. Oliver, you come. Mm, we'll talk later. I, okay. I will
0: say Trebinski does sound like a quarterback's name.
2: Does it? Because you're white and you think Polish is the best.
3: Trebinski,
4: Grabowski,
2: yeah. Lew- I like Gronkowski. Is that his name? Gronkowski. Gronkowski yeah. Yes. Pierogi. Yes, he's, yeah. It's he's Pierogi. Else. <laughs> yes. All right.
1: Let's talk some opera. Chalk talk on Opera Box Score. Opera
0: Box Score on WNUR eighty nine point three FM, Evanston, Chicago at Score on Twitter if you want to reach out to us. And in the studio, 847-866-9687. Time to take a couple of our listeners' letters here in our Chalk Talk segment. First one's from Dale. I think Dale is in Arizona. He went to Northwestern, he said, but I think he lives in Arizona now. And he writes, well, the subject line was Beefcake Film Slash Opera in Arizona. He says, hey, take a look at this link to Arizona Opera for a production, which appears to be right up Oliver's alley. Oh! oh and mine, for that matter. That's Dale saying mine. Uh, that's a very personal thing to say, Oliver, that it's up your alley. I mean, my alley's very wide. <laughs> the opera in question is called Hercules versus Vampires. It's composed by Patrick Morganelli. And essentially what it is, is a companion piece to the 1961 film Hercules in the Haunted World, and so it integrates the film by projecting it behind the action on stage, but the sound of the original film is replaced with Morganelli's music. Uh, We'll get a link to this on our website. You can also just go to azopera.org. I will say there are a lot of shirtless men uh, and some women in
2: bikinis but that okay. Well, let's let's back it up a little bit, and try to explain what this thing is going to be. Yeah. So they are going to be projecting a movie as the set design. They're going to mute it, and then there's going to be a live score. That's right. And people are going to be on stage singing, presumably about what's being projected behind them. Yes. Is that what's happening? Yes. There? How do you focus on this? Is my problem with projections if they're if they're too dynamic? How do you focus the audience's attention on the performers,
3: I think that's part of what makes it what, what makes it so unique is that the audience gets to choose, and that's <laughs> they get to I, choose. I, no. But think about that, and that's what's unique about it. You're pre, you're projecting a movie one, and then you have performers too. So, uh, whatever you want to see visually, you kind of get to choose. And maybe perhaps perhaps that's not what they're looking for at all. And I'm just an idiot well, here with the microphone. Yes but, and
0: no that you get to choose. I mean, look, there's you, a lot going on. You've been to sports bars. Look, if it's a bright light, it's very difficult to not look at the bright light mm-hmm. in a sports bar, which is the TV. Do you know what I mean? Instead I of like talking to the girl across from you. So this can happen in opera as well. That there is something happening on, on stage, there's also projections. Your eye naturally goes to the projections. Oliver's point is, if there's a whole movie happening, when are you going to look at what's happening on stage?
3: That's a good point. Uh, it doesn't actually show that it's staged. Um, it says the performer's on stage seeing the lines. So maybe... Maybe they're not doing anything,
2: but if they're going to be shirtless, they're totally going to be doing stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Take
3: a look
2: at the link. Um, on they have a pretty good-looking cast too. So I mean, I would they be do into that, you know? So yeah,
0: yeah, the cast is very good-looking. Actually, Toby, you know someone in the cast. I do. I know Stephanie
3: yeah. Sanchez. She's yeah. uh, a mezzo-soprano. She's fantastic.
0: Lee, good-looking.
3: Also, that <laughs> she's going to be on our show later on. Um, we couldn't get her tonight. She's yeah. in rehearsal uh, for a different show, but she's going to join us, and we're going to actually talk about this on a later date
0: too. The other article. Also from Arizona is uh, from Kevin down in Tucson. And he sent in this article about a big donation. The article is on Tucson.com. Arizona Opera lands an inspiring, in quotes, $1 million gift. The story here is a audience member, Scott Stallard, uh, recently saw Arizona Opera's production of Riders of the Purple Sage, which was part of a long-term project that the company had done in which it was trying to tell stories through opera that were very local, that were really about the people in this part of the country. And that Opera Writers of the Purple Sage was just that. This man was so moved by what he saw that they made a $1 million donation. Tobias Wright, what would you do with a million dollars? Pay off in opera
3: pay off my studio oh in opera yeah (laughs) i don't know i mean you can do a lot and i think certainly you know you read this article um and they talk about how they initially uh this couple initially before they gave the one million dollars here to promote new works um they had been donating to the costume uh shop there and and helping in a certain way what would i do with a million dollars in opera i don't know there's so many different things uh
2: a million dollars doesn't go very far. <laughs> uh,
3: conversely, uh, conversely, yeah. conversely, it goes incredibly far when all you're working it, with small companies.
0: Yeah. Do you know what I could do with a million dollars? <laughs> do you know what George does with like four hundred dollars <laughs> totally for being a show? Greedo, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that barbacoa is not sitting pretty right now. Oh my god! Let gosh. me tell you,
3: <laughs> it doesn't smell pretty either.
0: Um, uh, it's just okay. First, first of all, this donation is is extremely generous. Let's
3: well, wait, 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 wait. wait, wait, wait. wait,
2: wait, wait. We'll go on. Go
3: well, on. for a place like Arizona Opera, which is a, a a very well-established company, obviously, um, and they survive yearly. Um, but that's a substantial amount of money. And, in fact, I, I bet, I don't know what their percentage is, but that's a huge percentage of what their budget is yearly, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, I would agree um, with that. Because
3: there are very few companies that are over you know, $10, know 15000000 million budget. So when you're talking a million-dollar gift to a company like that, that's extraordinary, and they can do so many different things. You know, a million-dollar gift saved by Florida Grand Opera. So... Whatever's going on at Arizona, certainly this isn't going
2: to hurt.
0: <laughs> Oliver, do you agree that a million dollars is a big chunk of change for somewhere like I Opera? Mean, I don't know what, Opera?
2: what their annual budget is, so I can't speak to that because I haven't really done that much research on what Arizona's story is. But I did want to back up a little bit because we kind of brushed over what has been happening at, at Arizona Opera. Uh, so far, they have produced three shows that are specific to... Arizona, the region of Arizona, they did a mariachi opera called Cruzar La Cara de la Luna, in 2014. And that sounds good. Thank you. In 2015, they did Emmerich Kalman's Arizona Lady. Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, it's a classic operetta.
2: I don't know if it's classic, but it's an operetta by (laughs) Kalman. I mean, yeah. Um, And then this writer's thing was a commission, a new, new, you know, uh, a commission means it's new, (laughs) about Arizona. And they have two more plans. It's a five-year plan. So that is that is to be lauded, you know, that this company is just figuring it out. Like, what can we do to distinguish ourselves and what can we do to attract our audience, our specific audience, you know? Yeah. The yeah.
0: other reason why this donation is important at this point in the company's history is that it recently lost its general director, Ryan Taylor, over to Minnesota Opera and its head of music, Alan Periello, to the Glimmerglass Festival and also to Minnesota Opera. He, uh, Periello is going to both places in the regular season and then the summer season. So this is a company that I think is struggling a little bit to find an identity. Two very big players, and the high administrative level has gone. Money does not solve all problems, but it's, it's going to help them through some leaner patches where their upper administration is not going to be able to c- bring in consistent donations in a way that this million dollars could really help them out.
2: Okay. So just to back it up a little bit, continue like on this theme. So I think I said this already, that Eugene Onegin here in Chicago was my favorite opera of the season. It was a great season, uh, but just singing-wise and production-wise and cast-wise, I thought that the Eugene Onegin was phenomenal, and it's the one opera I would want to see again. Uh, and it was actually a Robert Carson production that has been floating around for a while. It's not brand new even. Right. But the reason why we had Eugene Onegin is because um, Mariusz Kvitschian, the Polish baritone, was supposed to sing King Roger, this Polish opera, the Szymonowski opera. And the lyric administration, Anthony Freud, decided that it was too risky to do King Roger and instead programmed Eugene Onegin. Okay. With largely the same cast. Yeah. Now, we live in Chicago, which has a Polish population supposedly that rivals Warsaw, you know, that there's more Polish people in Chicago than there are in most Polish cities, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was, to me, a big opportunity for Lyric Opera to reach out to an audience that doesn't come to the opera. Now, I'm not saying that Polish people don't come, but I mean, like, to find more audience members. Totally. And here's a success story with Arizona, Doing something that's specific to their, you know, location, and having a success with it. So that's I feel like that's the lesson to be learned here with this story. And then they found new donors absolutely to give a nice chunk of change because they were so moved by this, whatever this this new writers thing was, you know. So I hope you're listening over there and uh, over where. I don't you know. Look, you looked at the bias. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did look that's, at me. Well, that's I, north, north I, by I, the yeah. way. I you're promise, I am listening. Arizona. So, since you are uh, Chicago Fringe Opera and you're based out of what like the Ravenswood area, what opera could you put on that's specific to the Ravenswood community?
3: Perhaps it doesn't even exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it, and that's kind of the whole point, though, is with the writers of the Blue Sage mm. and this and this particular gift. You know, they found something that they were. Wildly successful with, and hopefully that continues. And it beat I their Carmen,
2: great, like like or one of the one of these Arizona operas. I forget which one. Uh, it, yeah, did better a, than the best-selling true. standard opera. True, you right, know. right.
3: Also, they're they're a level two house, so um, somewhere, and th- their budget isn't any more than ten million dollars. Or if it is, it's not by much. Okay. Though this is old, so that could have changed. But thanks to Where you, where's Kevin? your data, George? Letters. You're the data guy.
2: <laughs> yeah. You got you got the yeah, data. You got the burrito to worry about. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, it's Opera Boxcore W and UR. We're gonna go ahead and do the hometown segment. Talk a little bit about Chicago.
1: How about we root for the home team?
2: Baseball season's underway.
0: Man. Oh dude, I thought you were gonna sing the whole thing. Go Cubs go. thank,
2: thank you very much. That's all we need. I have a master's degree. Yes. Tenor, Tobias Wright, everybody. The
0: Andreas Mitisek era is over. Over. At Chicago Opera Theater with the closing of The Perfect American by Philip Glass on Sunday afternoon. I was there and I saw it. And I don't want to talk too much about the show itself. Oliver talked about it on the last episode. uh, Other than to say that I I really liked it.
2: You did, but but you didn't stay for it.
0: Andreas... (laughs) And made a speech beforehand. He always makes a and speech. And he always makes a speech. <laughs> and look, you know, English is not his first language. It can be a little bit hard to follow him sometimes on what he's saying. Uh, Philip Glass was in the audience, so he obviously addressed Philip Glass and said, thank you so much for being here. And Philip Glass got a standing ovation. And then Minisek thanked the crowd for being uh, in Chicago and at C.O.T. for five years. And he said, wow, five years has really gone fast. And the silence was deafening. You know? <laughs> oh, no. It's, it's interesting. When I think about what the Minisec legacy is going to be at COT, it's going to be two things it's going to be that show in the swimming pool that they did. Yes. And it's going to be that Minisec got them out of the Harris Theater. And that next season is all going to be at the Studebaker. And I don't see why COT would go back to the Harris.
2: Yeah. I mean, the ironic thing is that they had not been able to fill the Harris. This right. Harris can seat up to 1,500. Um, and if you have less than 700, it feels really sad in there. Right. Um, and their audiences were hovering around the 300 to 500, you know?
0: 300? Yeah. Okay, so that's a fifth yeah. of
3: the capacity. Yeah. I, I mean, did not realize that they we're struggling that much. to. Well, I mean, that's information
2: space. that maybe certain people shouldn't be sharing on the radio, but I, un- I understand that.
4: <laughs> so you could just you could go to the show uh, and yeah. you could we do can't edit can. it out. It's, it's, the, yeah. it's the same thing.
2: So, um, you know, they needed to move to something smaller and they were experimenting with other venues. And I, I'm happy that the Studebaker is now in a place where it can, you know, house a small opera company regularly. Um, but I was going to say the ironic thing is that this it's a the, mar- the marketing campaign for the Perfect American was so on point that they had you know over a thousand people uh, on the opening night, and apparently there was like twelve hundred people the night you went. It was, was pretty the, full you know, for the yeah. Sunday matinee. Well, plus they had Philip yeah. Glass in the audience, so you know I that, that helps. I you understand know?
0: that it's just interesting to me that when I think about the Minnesec legacy, it's not about the programming, and that. Apart from the invention of morell, which was a highlight for this past season, that mm-hmm. was a world premiere. It's the first world premiere that COD has done. I don't know since when. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they've done a pr- world premiere since I've been in Chicago.
2: Well, we should probably not. We should probably research that. <laughs> we probably
0: should. That's, we what, that's what I'm saying. I don't know.
2: That's like Donald Trump saying, "Like you know, I had the biggest crowd. It was,
0: it was <laughs> huge. It was just that premiere was huge." <laughs> Uh, Jaina. Jaina, Jaina, Jaina. Well, I, this is what else is confusing about Andreas Minasek, is that he's coming back next season to direct Monati's The Consul as the season opener. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think the point is that they parted with Andreas Minasek without rancor, you know? like Who's
0: they? The people the of Chicago? The, the, the board. The board, yeah. Okay, the board.
2: Yeah and i i'm I, it's it's still not clear i want to f- hear the story just like with the Darren woods thing i want to hear the whole story and we should mm-hmm. we are like the journalists we should be out there like pounding the pavement and getting this story i <laughs> like on, the gossip i'm going to put on <laughs> the gossips i'm going to put on my hat a, and a little bit of like a little white card that says press in Get it a stenopad <laughs> yeah but there's some ah, story here that, that's, that's not being here. told here and who knows if the board forced him out if they didn't like his programming choices, but they also wanted to save face, you know, and not what, you know, Uh, and and also because Midisek is doing, wearing three hats there. Like he was music director and artistic director and general director, you know, and stage director, like conductor. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe they thought that he wasn't focused enough. I don't know what it was, but they were sharing productions with Long Beach Opera which is a good deal for them because they get to do newer works. And Long Beach, you know, has a good reputation. And they did that Iraq War opera, the Fidelugia, you know, so that that's good, yeah. you know. And we do need, as much as I'm not a fan of 21st century opera, we need it. You know, we need to be programming those things, you know.
0: We absolutely need it.
2: But what has been a hit in Andreas' legacy, you're right. It's It was the the Ricky and Gordon Orfeo, Orfeo mm-hmm. and I don't know what else. I mean, they did a show called Queenie Pie, Uh, what
3: about about this show what about this show sorry
2: um would you not call that a hit perfect american i think it was a hit in the sense that it had a lot of buzz and a lot of people showed up for it but is it an opera that has legs or that that maybe i don't know maybe i'm so old-fashioned that i didn't see the value in you know reproducing it i would want to see it again just to see if I can catch all of the things that I missed the first time around because it was kind of dense in the first act.
4: Yeah.
3: Actually, someone said that to me. They, they said they, I hate to say this out loud, but they f- fell asleep repeatedly in the first act. Yeah, I so did too. Was I long. mean, I
2: was, I was having a really hard time focusing, but the second act was actually very powerful, you know, but the first act was just a little bit dense. So
0: I feel like we're going to be following Andreas Medesek to the grave. You know, I we're going to turn over a new page. It's COT, and we're going to see what's going to happen. And frankly, hopefully opera box score is the place that we're gonna to start to figure some of these things. We're gonna out. solve
2: it here.
1: <laughs> hey, coming
0: up next, I go inside the huddle with composer William Balcom. Do not miss what he has to say about the future of opera in America. Keep it right here. W N-U-R-89.3 FM Opera Box Score. <laughs>
1: From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Here's create a graduate. It takes the same time to create a drop out, and the difference could be you. Become a volunteer reader, tutor, or mentor. Because when a child succeeds, we all succeed. Take the pledge at unitedway.org and make a difference in the life of a child. This public service message brought to you by United Way, the Ad Council, and WNUR-FM. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T F, face drooping A, arm weakness S, speech difficulty T, time to call 911 I'm Paul George, spot a stroke fast Visit strokeassociation.org Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council
0: My name is Sue Smith I'm 38, and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you, I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brothers Big Sisters. My Big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My Big Sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this 8-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a
2: graphic designer.
5: Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the
1: Ad Council live from Chicago it's Opera Box score with George Tobias and Oliver Huddle up let's go inside the huddle
0: Opera Box score WNUR 89.3 FM George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho hello and Tobias Wright Hello. 847-866-9687 the number in the studio on Twitter, at Opera Box Score, William Balcom is kind of a childhood legend of mine, I would say. I spent uh, my early childhood in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he also was for many years. As you're going to hear in this interview with him, when I was back in Ann Arbor over Easter, I was able to set up an interview with him and go hang out at his house for, I don't know, actually almost an hour. Talking. This is kind of an edited version of what we talked about. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Here we are in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan, Mm -hmm. my hometown. And I want to know how you got to Ann Arbor in the first place. Oh,
5: okay. Uh, I had a very good friend named William Albright, who was an organist and a pianist and and a composer mostly. I met him at Tanglewood in 1966. We became great friends. I drove by this way on 67 because I was driving from New York, where I was living all the way to uh, where it was La Jolla in you know in the south of uh, San Diego. Anyway, um, stopped by and I saw Bill, and uh, I looked at the town. I found it a very charming place. I was taken by him to the uh, there was a band rehearsal. first time I ever saw a girl, Horness swore lovely young women are playing the horn I'd never seen it anywhere before and I began to see there's an awfully good number of musicians here and it's a very culturally aware town and an uh, hour and a quarter away from New York by, by plane so uh, well to make a long story short, they offered me a job in 1973. I came here because I really wanted to have more time to compose, because it was tough in New York. I had quit teaching at the at the City University at various places. I wanted to hit the street, which I found very instructive. It taught me a lot about real music and real life. But I came here in 1973 with all that street experience, which was, I think one of the reasons I was, uh, I was attractive to the composers, because I was dealing with real life a lot. So uh, that's how I ended up here, and they have been very uh, liberal with me. I retired in 2008, but I had to take off a whole lot of time for my operas, for example. And also, when my Songs of Innocence was first done in Stuttgart, I had to be there. So i had to be there, for, gone for weeks at a time. <clears throat> but then I realized I was sort of their man in Havana. I was everywhere, and, and uh, so i have been very well treated, as was Joan, because we had a very heavy touring career for many years. So uh, that's why I'm
0: here. 35 years on the faculty at Michigan teaching composition. Right. Uh, how How did you keep yourself going? I mean, 35 years sounds like a very long time to be at one institution.
5: Well, it was a good place to be. Still is a very good place. I would recommend it because one of the things it has for composers particularly is access to performance. And teachers of the instruments and the voice who are very much for new music and will help to put things together, It's a very friendly environment in that kind of way. So Mm -hmm. I felt that was very good, and I felt very happy about the fact it was a non-doctrinaire kind of place. Though there were many places which had a very strong musical ideology that if you were not in conformance to it, you really couldn't teach there. Nor were there a lot of places which were open to any number of things, which I felt was here was a very open kind of thing, and very oriented toward performance, which is very important for composers. Many of them get into situations where it gets too too theoretical. Here, you were hands-on. I even got to teach a composition class for non-composition majors, which was lots of fun. <laughs> I found out there was a very strong amateur music culture here. People grew up out of family string quartets and things like that. There's still something of like that, and uh, which is an ideal environment for uh, any number of things. <laughs> so I was very happy here, and uh, I found it to be a cultural happy situation, and for many years we had a -a pied-à-terre until a couple of years ago in New York, so we were back and forth all the time.
0: When I listen to your music, there's this real seamlessness between popular music and classical music. I Uh, feel like that's been something that has really defined your career. If if that's right, why has that been of interest to you? What what is the relationship between those two genres?
5: Well, I'm just restoring the old... Uh, situation in which those two things were more or less indissoluble. They even were in the beginning of the 20th century here if you realize how much was uh, harmonically and otherwise evolved and interesting through the great song composers of that period. People like Jerome Kern were fully trained Uh, George Gershwin became really an extremely solid composer. In fact, one of the things I'm very happy about is that here there will be a critical edition of George Gershwin's music at the Mm -hmm. University of Michigan, which will take 20-30 years to put together, but it's wonderful as here. We have Gershwin's own Last Piano, which is nice, but that wasn't important so much in the same way as knowing that everything that will be here, under the good stewardship of Mark Clegg, will be sure that we end up with a... Finally, uh, uh, an addition that takes account of uh, Gershwin, he was not uh, uh, an amateur, he learned an awful lot, he was actually, by the time he was gone, he was a very finished composer, and a lot of very interesting details about him, he was always quite interesting, and the thing is, that was, what, was the old collection between popular music and serious music, which were not that separated. They became separated in our time because of economics, because you can make money more with one than you can with the other, and so on and so forth. So now we have this idea of this is popular music and it's over here, is classical music near the twain shall ever meet. So all i have done is all I've done is restore the old balance. To look at a trio
0: of your operas, McTeague, A View from the Bridge, and A Wedding, these were all done in collaboration with Arnold Weinstein, That's right. your librettist. What was it about that collaboration that was so fruitful and so productive?
5: I was a beneficiary of a long relationship with a composer, Darius Mio. And... Uh... One day, Mio had gone to see his son, Daniel, who's one of my very close friends. I have several of his drawings and paintings and two sculptures in the back. Daniel just died in 2014. He was actually here in Ann Arbor hmm. because of the fact that I was able to get the university to put on a 100th year anniversary performance of Mio's Oristea, *The Aeschylus Oresteia in French from Paul Claudel, which was done here with huge forces and is now out on Naxos. So I got Daniel to come here because always we would stay with them when we were in Paris and uh, he was able to be here to witness the the uh, performance and recording of, of the Oresteia which is now out there and it's one of the great works of Mio and I was very glad to be able to do that anyway uh, what had happened was um, Daniel uh, was living in Florence with; uh, he was actually studying with the great painter Oscar Kokoschka Arnold Weinstein was a Fulbright in Florence, at the same time they became very good friends. Arnold wrote a, a libretto, which he called a comedy of horrors, and uh, when Darius went to see his son Daniel, Arnold gave him that libretto. He brought it back to Paris with him. He had read it and said he liked it a lot, but it was too American for him. So, since I was in his class at the conservatory, I'd been with him in, at uh, Aspen before and also at Mills College in California. And so he said, Stay after class. And he gave me the libretto. And I said, I really liked, liked it. And so we wrote to him and got permission from Arnold to have me set it. Well, what came out of it is an enormous number of things. Um, I had to leave to go to America in the middle of my studies in 1961 at the Conservatory because the draft had come. And I got back to New York and uh, waiting for the moment that I'd have to go to Fort Dix, which is no longer open at that time. I had to do that. Then I got this mysterious call from Stanford we will offer you a doctorate and a deferment. And I know pretty much that it was Mio had a hand in that because one of his students taught at Stanford got me a deferment and the doctorate. Meantime, I started working on a comedy of horrors, which then became renamed as Dynamite Tonight, and it was clear it was an opera that involved actors, not singers, because I had had some rather disappointing time trying to do vocal repetiteur work with singers. In those years, singers were pretty much never talking about, with their teachers, what they were singing about. Diction rather than understanding of a text. Uh, And things like suppressing the vowels, I was—I suppressing the consonants when we got upper notes and things like that. I was so disgusted by that and I just couldn't teach that way that I began to get more and more interested in actors. Yeah. And I found a number of actors who were musically literate or even who were very good listeners who were able to, as Arnold said, hang the notes on the words. Right. And we ended up with an actor's opera. We had three of them actually, theater opera, we, through cabaret opera, we couldn't find the right name for it. But you know, people sang everything and they might have a difficult line, but if a line was viable theatrically, they learned it. They didn't know it was difficult. They just did it. And so I was so happy with working with these actors. I never thought I would ever write an opera for opera singers. Hmm. Well, in 1986, I was asked to the NAA for the opera musical theater. Because um, what I was doing was more musical theater than an opera house opera. And uh, I was there on the panels and all the rest. There was this amazing woman named Artis Cranick, you might have right. heard of since you're an old Chicagoan. And uh, I was just absolutely so impressed by her. Well, she seemed to like me too. So at, as it turned out, in 1986 was the year also that uh, I was doing the, uh, actually it was the Songs of Businesses that I' have Experience were done in Grant Park. Twice, as a matter of fact, that summer. And I don't know whether it was 85 or 86, I first met artists. But she was there with uh, Bruno Bartoletti, who was a musical director there at that time. They then asked me, would I like to do an opera for Lyric Opera Chicago? And then finally, they said, I'd like to have you do four operas. So we only I got to do three, because Arnold, just to make a long story short, Arnold died before the fourth opera was possible. So we did three operas there. Um, And uh, at that time, I've already noticed the difference between the 1960s, that all of a sudden there were more and more singers who were paying attention to what they were singing about Mm -hmm. and began to look at the acting possibilities in there. And uh, sometimes they have still not, they tend to sometimes insert the acting on sort of like an injection, but you find other ones who really internalize the text, and therefore, since they understand it, you can. Mm-hmm. and they i the idea has always been to try to get people to stop looking at the damn surtitles but you know they still have that problem it's just doing on you know, him sure. but but that's one of those things that you have to fight a bit but in other words i've tried to set so that you could get every word and that the text was actually clarified by the setting which has been my whole idea over the years and now I have theatrically viable operas. At least I hope they are. That's what I've tried to do.
0: Well, Lucrezia, which is being done by Chicago Fringe Opera in May, is certainly theatrically viable. Uh, that's with librettist Mark Campbell, yes. who wrote Silent Night and, yeah. of course, also collaborated with you on Dinner at Eight.
5: Which is we just did in, in March. At, exactly. Uh, Minnesota.
0: What's that collaboration been like
5: with Mark Campbell? He's a very practical, solid professional librettist with a poetic instinct arnold was a poet who had a theatrical instinct but was not as librettist oriented as a librettist so actually I had much more of a hand in the librettos when i was dealing with arnold because he was one of those people who tended to take the brechtian principle of using everybody as a collaborator mm-hmm. not always crediting not always crediting and that as we know it was true with brecht but but with arnold Uh, He sort of took everything in, and we worked on everything. Uh, He gave me uh, song and uh, musical ideas. I gave him verbal ideas. Uh, Joan Morris, for whom we wrote the cabaret songs, had a very strong collaborative hand in it. That's just the way Arnold was. With Mark, uh, we do collaborate, he and I, but he was really much more of a professional in the comes to the business of putting together a libretto as such. He's obviously the go-to guy. He's done fifteen operas and working on, you know, all the time. Uh, he, mine was just one of nine of that year he was putting together. <laughs> so I mean this is a very busy man. A very different kind of cat.
0: Composer oh. William Balcom on Opera Box Score. What do you enjoy most about Lucrezia when you listen to it again or when you see it or mm. when you when you read the libretto again? What is it that you find attractive about the piece? Well, uh,
5: It seemed like it was a very practical idea. I think we should really mention it was one of two. There was another, and still is, done often in tandem with it, one called Bastidello, which Mark took from a Boccaccio short story. Lucrezia is taken and completely transformed from a play by Machiavelli. Now, Lucrezia in history was the wife of Tarquin, and of course she was an early king before the the, uh, Senate started happening in Rome. And um, she was, she had to, uh, well, she dies at the end. I forget whether she commits suicide or some terrible thing happening.
0: It's This is the same Lucrezia as Benjamin Britten
5: would write about. Exactly, in The Rape of Lucrezia, right? She was raped and died. Um, well, anyway, Mark had the idea of no, let's make Lucrezia the winner in this one. And she's going to be able to call the shots completely. And he has this wonderfully absurd, great idea. And I said, you know what? I would like to do a zarzuela. Hmm. I've always loved that form. This is this is these short uh, Spanish-Mexican kind of thing. In fact, that's the very culture that Placido de Domingo came from. His parents were zarzuela. Uh They had a company of zarzuela, I think, in Mexico City. So it's a very traditional little half-hour type of uh, kind of short story, a chance for people to do great little songs. and You have very much the same kind of plot, curiously, known, very similar to the Yiddish opera, which is about half an hour also. Sure. And the story is always uh, a girl falls in love with somebody and her father says no and the end father relents. That's the whole story. <laughs> Meantime, they can have some sad operas, uh, arias, and, and they can do something. But it's generally a show kind of thing and there's a certain kind of lightness about it. Probably the great star in Zarzuela was a lady named Conchita Suferia and if you can find some recordings of her she was phenomenal hmm. anyway so it, let's make it to an Argentina opera. So um, uh, 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 we'll, we'll make it to Zarzuela so it's only Zarzuela ever in England <laughs> ever in English so that's that kind of the whole thing so it's all you know people with Chucho and names like that which are essentially you know uh, Hispanic and so the fun was to try to take that idea meantime Lucrezia well what happens is she sees this young man she's from a balcony she throws a rose down and that he has to figure out how he's going to get to her. She is married to this old codger who, uh, she needs some fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea is how to be able to bring fun along into her life. And so she goes to, he's most martial, and and, uh, this young man who picks up the thing, uh, he goes through some wonderfully outrageous uh, changes with the help of this, a fellow named Chucho, who works out all these marvelous, mad things that he has to put himself through to be able to have a night in love with her. All that's just for that. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, also, Chucho has asked for money for every one of these stages from all these different kind of people. He has put together quite a little handsome amount of money. And at the end, Lucretia ends up getting it all. So she wins instead of becoming you know, uh, dead as <laughs> she was not The yeah. Rape of yeah. yeah. The
0: music is contagious for the show. The plot is outrageous and totally fun to follow. Even in looking at the score, a lot of the tempo markings seem to have jokes in them. There's one part in the score uh, where it's written, James Brown in memoriam, on the oh, way to
5: the play... That, that famous little lick he always had. <laughs>
0: Exactly.
5: I did a terrible thing. I you know I keep making jokes, but they're more for the benefit of the performers. I you know um, I did one for my octet, which we did uh, about two three weeks ago. And there's one place I said uh, um, free bows here, uh, and then I said other bows afterwards, and so that's something like that. That was just a joke for them. <laughs> and I put little musical jokes into my music. hotel it's terrible. I have an awful. I have a mania to doing that. Okay. I don't know why.
0: (laughs) When you look at the way opera is changing in America, um, what what do you see in the future for this art form in this country? What what does it need that it doesn't have right now?
5: It's getting what it wants, which is to say performers who are viably theatrically and musically, and this is brings brings about a kind of American opera which will be much more involved with the theatrical part than traditional opera. It used to not be verbally oriented at all. Before the First World War, if you went to the Met, if they're doing a performance of Don Giovanni, the Don would sing it in Russian, and uh, Donio Ver might do it in German. Uh, You know, the commentator could be maybe uh, Italian. Everybody sang in their own own language, doing a production at the Met. It was done all the time, which goes to show you how unimportant the language was. And suppose you suppose I know the story and all the rest of it. Well, that has changed now. Of course, the thing for American opera, we need something that is much more theatrically viable, and which should be also using the the wonderful tradition of the great musical theater worlds of the early part of the twentieth century. And I think to meet the great uh, paradigm for opera in America it was Gershwin, Sporgi, and Best, which is again also an amalgam of theatrical and operatic elements. It allowed the highest kind of cl- complexity when needed, and also the simplicity when that's also needed, which is what the old operas we always loved had. You have a very interesting, complicated opera, but meantime out comes La Donne Immobile, everybody knows it. and. Bairdie was such a master at that. And even many of the Wagner operas had tunes that everybody knew about, Ring. It's funny, you don't hear those things anymore. We talk about the ring now, or Tristan. But uh, the other operas had hit tunes. And there was all this sense of something that was immediately accessible, but also with a deeper resonance that you can have in opera that may not be so easy in theater or in, in, in um, straight opera. So this is what makes it quite interesting to me right now. And I see that there are more and more performers who are able to do this. And that was the number one element that you had to have. But without that, you couldn't do it. So I think in a way it's oriented toward what everybody seems to want to have. So I think it seems to be evolving in that direction. I've, I certainly made an awful lot of effort to bring about that kind of an amalgam, but I see it's happening all over the place. Composer uh, William
0: Balcom on Opera box score, Mr. Balcom, thank you so much. It's
5: been my pleasure.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
3: Dale Pazinski, and this is how I live United. I volunteer with United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey, man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt. I live it.
2: Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council.
0: My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38, and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brothers Big Sisters. My Big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My Big Sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this 8-year-old grows up to have an amazing job
4: as a graphic designer.
5: Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters
1: and the Ad Council. This just in, the two-minute drill.
0: Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in opera land in two minutes tops. A recent article in the New York Times drew parallels between Renee Fleming, 58, and Natalie Dessay, 52, saying that they faced the same problem over the past decade or so. Quote, it's not that I'm leaving opera, Dessay told the newspaper Le Figaro in 2013, during her final run in Massenet's Manon, it's that opera is leaving me. Mohamed Farouz, a U.S. citizen and composer whose work has been recorded on the Deutsche Grammophon label, has said he was detained for four hours at JFK Airport by officials who refused to give a reason for their suspicion. He is originally from Egypt. A crooked theater producer took a plea deal Wednesday in Manhattan court for stealing thousands of dollars from investors for a bogus Broadway show about the life of Kathleen Battle. New York City's opera scene is at its most open and inviting in decades, and now it goes to the second year of the New York Opera Festival. This year, the productions will be in playgrounds and bars, a neighborhood garden and a converted garage. Through June 23rd, 20 companies will stage 28 different productions. Ju Hyun Han, who has been blind since she was a baby, played the role of the female chorus last week in Benjamin Britten's The Rape of Lucretia at Stony Brook University. It's claimed that she's the first blind singer to be cast in a leading role in a U.S. conservatory or university. The University of Michigan football team, in an effort to explore the culture of Italy, attended an opera event one evening in Detroit last week. They were entertained by a soprano, tenor, and baritone, and were taught a bit about opera. Defensive lineman Chase Winovich said, hopefully it can inspire us to be a better team, opera, football, life. The troubled English National Opera has announced its next season. Martin Brabins, the new music director, will conduct two out of nine productions. A fifth new show, Britain's Turn of the Screw, will be staged at the Regent's Park Opener Theater. Oprah Frankfurt has released its new season, 12 new productions, two world premieres. Enough said, and on this day in 1786, it was the premiere of *Le Nozze di Figaro by Mozart at the Borgtheater in Vienna. That is the two-minute drill.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Dan Oliver, the man, Camacho. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Just going to bring it in here with a little bit of the
3: smooth beats. Dab on it.
2: That's the no. That was like grind uh, on it. Say it that I, once. Once you have like caught on to some kind of cultural phenomenon, that means it's already over. So Indeed. it's over. Yeah. By the time is you it, caught on to it, it's
0: over. Is it because I'm a dad?
2: Uh, I don't know, George. Let's just leave that there. I just, I just, <laughs> I don't think it has anything to do with you being a dad because there are plenty of dads that are hip. Oh my! I, I love that intro music, dude. Wait, did you just that? No. What did said? you say? Michael Rice, for example, is like is always ahead of me in like cultural things. So. No, I, I was over here going over my notes and I missed what you said. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't worry about
0: it. Opera box score on WNUR. 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho. Tobias Wright. That was William Balcom Tur- being interviewed by myself earlier on. And what a what a total blast that was to talk to him. That was a,
3: you know what? That was great. He really opened up to you. He shared a lot about uh, his influences and the sounds that he created. I loved hearing him talk about Lucrezia. Um yeah, that was he fantastic. Just
0: such an important composer. He turns 80 next year. His work could not be more different than somebody like Philip Glass, say, who also had an anniversary this year. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, what a heavy hitter. Whether it's opera, whether it is musical theater, whether it is art song.
3: I was going to say his contribution to the American art song. I, I don't think there's any way that... Um Unless you're, in, I, it's hard to comprehend just how much he's contributed to that specific genre.
0: Certainly, in terms of a living composer contributing yeah. to art song, I don't know who else that would be.
2: I, I don't either. Oliver, At this point. Olivier, the, the American art song. Yeah. yeah, one would say Ricky and Gordon and Jake Heggie. Yeah. right now, yeah. But For, I mean, they're, we're talking about current composers. Yeah, but yeah. there are people like Laura Dixon Strickling, who is mm-hmm. a Chicago-based soprano, mm-hmm. or actually, she's like a Virgin Islands-based soprano, but Virgin Chicago. Uh, she Hardly. would know the answer to who is like the art song composer of our time yeah. right now. But um, I, I think Bochum is in that discussion. Definitely. I mean, for American, and, yeah.
3: And, yeah, absolutely.
0: This article on Natalie Dissay, mm. this is from the New York Times again, although the quote that I read was from Le Figaro from a couple years earlier. Oliver Camacho, what's your take here? Is with this a I mean there's something soprano.
2: There's something that's really hard yeah, I know where you're going with that. There's something very heartbreaking about this article because you know, I started listening to opera well, she's I'm not that much uh Okay, let me start let me start, the, start over start How right. old are you, Oliver? I'm forty two. <laughs> no, I, that's what so, I So and <laughs> she's fifty-three. And when she won she won some competition. And she was like, it was a Mozart competition and they made a recording of her singing Mozart concert arias shortly after she won that competition. So she was really fresh on the scene and she was doing Olympia and Tales of Hoffman. And that was right around the time I got out of college. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. It was such a thrilling, highly technical, but very musical voice. Uh, and I was just like obsessed with it and I wanted to hear everything she sang. And I followed her career and I had an I had one of the best experiences in HD, met uh, HD when she sang Marie and Daughter of the Regiment, and then things started going to decline, and I could see that she had the curse of the teacup soprano, who wanted to sing more interesting repertoire, try to branch out into repertoire that was you know bigger than what her voice really could do, like Violetta and Traviata and you know, um di Delamamore and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, she did the coloratura bits, like, really well, but she had to really use a lot of capital to sing the more dramatic lyrical stuff. And year after year, the coloratura stuff started going away, and the pristine tone tone started to go away, and the focus and whatnot. She was always—she still is musical, but the technique she sacrificed. And there are singers— who have her voice type, like Roberta Peters, for example, who just passed away recently, who kept the color to her technique, who kept the lightness, and was able to sing well into her, like, 70s, you know?
0: The reason that Natalie Dessay is going to stick around is that she's such a fantastic actress. I think I'm right in saying that she started in the straight theater. I know she's done straight plays in her career, and I know she has some coming up. That is something she's always going to have, and frankly, she could improve the older she gets as an actress. She could go back to Paris and she could just do plays.
2: Well, this article is really a review of a concert that Natalie Zay gave probably in, in New York. and yes uh, it was. Zachary Wolf wrote it, and um, he says that uh, she's a passionate artist who casts a memorable spell, but is not always a pleasure to listen to, a pure pleasure to listen to. and I've definitely agree with that um, and one of the quotes uh, that she told Le Figaro is that uh, that she's not leaving opera but opera is leaving her right. you know and that's this it just makes me sad you That know? is like, sad.
0: that is sad, sad um, way to put it.
2: but I, I know I, I still cherish her early career and I will remember her performances um, she definitely had such great acting ability that those roles like Olympia and Tales of Hoffman which kind of like are easy to act because like you have like a shtick you got to do she really brought it to the next level with yeah. that shtick you know and her comic ability in Daughter of the Regiment I, it's, I've, I haven't seen an opera singer be that funny ever so
0: Tobias hmm. do you have an article that you want to talk about here that is as moving to you as the article about Natalie Dessay was to Oliver
3: um you know, I thought uh, it was interesting to hear about the first blind singer uh, cast in a conservatory in a principal role. I thought, That's that, was, I thought that was pretty wild that was pretty wild. The other thing that I thought was interesting was the University of Michigan football team going to <laughs> going to Rome and meeting the pope uh, that, and
2: that, that article bothered me a little bit because they went to something that i 've heard of um, it 's like a Tourist trap type of, you know, go see yeah, it opera. It was like and, it know. was like
3: l'opera Lirica, Yeah. Which and it it feels to me like that might be one of those pay Ah oh God, we're all gonna get lose our jobs. We don't have jobs. Yeah. But one of those pay to things that shows up on Yap Tracker.
2: Yeah, I've seen a brochure for that thing, and it's actually <laughs> like a legit thing where they oh, they okay. they they have brochures all over the city and it's like a total tourist trap. Yeah. And it's I don't want to say it's low quality because I haven't heard it, but it sounds like just very mediocre, you know, well, production value, in a string the article, quartet, piano, and like a baritone, a tenor, and a meth soprano, you know.
3: In the article, though, uh, Coach Harbaugh, he said that he asked if the tenor could sing something that was inspiring, and I was like... Oliver, George, what would be an inspiring, what opera aria could inspire a football team to go win the Big Ten? Uh, that a tenor sings? Uh, yeah. <laughs> all, I mean,
2: like, uh, Nessun Dorma, yeah, but not even that's really. That's it's going to be. That's like
3: it. Well, but it just makes me sad that like, team this team
2: lag they're talking about <laughs> this is like their first experience, you know, seeing opera in quotation marks. Hopefully. They <laughs> yeah. And I really wish they would have gone to see an opera, you know? They like,
0: should have just gone to see an opera. I, yeah. I also I love it. the
2: quote, opera football,
0: yeah. life life. Yeah. That's my that's my tattoo. But I also by the way, there's, a, there's
2: a blind singer named Lori Rubin who's amazing. Is he in way. Chicago? No, she's I think in New oh, York. Okay.
0: Clearly America. not if it's a shape. Yeah. Uh, man, I'm all over the place. First of all, when I was reading this article, I thought that they were in Detroit, Michigan, because the article's like they were in Rome, Michigan.
2: I know the, the editing is, is really a, poor. Which yeah. is a suburb of Detroit, but uh, they, the were ac- ENO, they were actually um, like in Rome, Italy. The Eno uh, season, I wanted to talk about. It's great. I know for a company that's struggling. I don't know what their, I mean, their struggles are with the administration, but it's a really brilliant season. You know, four new productions, five revivals. They're doing Britain. They're doing Nico Muley. I don't know. Um, at the bottom of that article there's something
3: interesting and I wanted your guys' opinion on it. I think it said something like ninety-three percent or ninety-two percent of the artists yeah. and, and people associated with it are uh are are British. English or yeah. British. Yeah. Um Is that something we want? I mean it's it is the English national opera, but do you know what I'm saying? Like what if what if the lyric uh, of Chicago is putting on a season. Well, and, and eno
2: is not trying to be like the company of England. That would be Covent Garden. But e o is like right. the, is like the top level other company. You know? Understood. And performs in yeah. the English language.
3: Yeah. Understood. I just thought that was really so. Interesting. That's what like New York
2: City Opera used to be for New York City. You know, the company that really promoted American artists. You know. Yeah. Um. So I I think it's a great mission. Cool.
0: I agree with you. I think that is that is a good stat, and I think that that. Should be that way again. It's saying British-born, trained, or resident. That could obviously mean people from Wales, England, and absolutely. Scotland, and just it, to
3: break it, it down. reflects it reflects in a positive manner on so many different. The
0: season is not as good as this one at Oprah Frankfurt. God, this company does nothing wrong. Twelve new productions, two world premieres, including a version of. The novel and also Roman Polanski film, The Tenant. Have either of you guys seen this Mm-mm, movie? Negative it ghost writer. so freaky, I cannot tell you. I am scared already. Uh, Trovatore, Ranallo by Handel, Peter Grimes, Capriccio, an opera by Manfed Toyan called Enrico, uh, a world premiere here called Wintry Tale and the Bronze Snake, a wacky opera by Meyerbeer, House of the Dead, Janacek, Merry Widow, that? Norma... Lefrican? It's That's
3: not, is... not that wacky. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's
2: wacky to you, but it's not. Lefrican. It's a famous Meyerbeer opera, so. yeah. No,
0: nobody yeah. does
2: Meyerbeer. It's, it's true because it's hard. It's like it's yeah, it's, you got to have singers yeah. to do that. No, but it's also like the it's the where bel canto and grand French opera have a baby, and you need like <laughs> the, you have you need to have like the most ridiculous forces like for William Tell, you know, and you have to have crazy good singers, you know.
1: So. <laughs> Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score.
0: Sorry, buddy. Tobias, I feel like I cut you off there. I'll let you do your good call, bad call first. I'm used to it, George. As a apology.
3: Hmm. Um, my good call is that we are in Tech Week right now. We open on Saturday night uh, for Chicago Fringe Opera, William Bolcom's Lucrezia. It's going to be a fantastic show. Please get your tickets. Um, if you're in the Chicago area, even if you're not, come check it out. Um, and you can get your tickets at com.
2: Oliver Camacho. A couple of things. Uh, there is a St. Matthew Passion from Hamburg that uh, was performed in 2016 but was recently released on YouTube and probably someplace legal <laughs> where you can actually watch the whole thing. But I think you can actually watch the whole thing on YouTube. Uh, staged by Romeo uh, Castellucci. This thing is awesome. Just check out St. Matthew Passion and type in the name Romeo Castellucci, C-A-S-T-E-L-L-U-C-C-I from Hamburg. Amazing. I also want to uh, remind you that on Wednesday uh Vera hunk Edward Nelson is singing De Shenamurrin and it's fully choreographed by Jessica Lang and you can get a uh, 50% off tickets by using the code Schubert50 at the Harris Theater Chicago website that's going to be really cool and shout out to Stephanie Blythe who sang a concert here last week mostly of American folk songs tr- traditional songs and pop and she sang the whole concert in her chess voice and it blew me away like I did not hear a head voice at all (laughs) in the whole evening, but it was amazing, so...
0: That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, dot com At WNUR, the programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brax Ducey. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page, share and comment on our posts, or just tweet us at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. If you like what you hear, help promote the show, just leave a review. The Creative Consultant, for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho, and the co-host is Tobias Wright. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera in the merry, merry month of May. We're back next Monday at 9 Central when we check in with the latest news from the 2017 Opera America Conference in Dallas. If you're going to be there, give us a call. Let us know what's going on. You can also tweet us. Argo Radio is up next with DJ Joe. This is WNUR FM, Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment. Boy, no.